The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Morning, everyone. Today we're going to be launching into this uh, Life of David series that's been called uh, After God's Heart. And so um, it's been something that I've been kind of um, reflecting on throughout the summer, this uh, story of the life of King David that's found in First and Second Samuel. And so um, it feels like it's just been something brewing in my heart for months. And now I'm excited to finally unleash it on you, you know. And so we're going to be exploring this amazing story together uh, for the next several months, in fact. Okay, it'll take us all the way up to the Advent series at the start of December. Why don't we begin with a word of prayer, and then we will get into it. Lord, open up our hearts to receive your word this morning. Grant to us a teachable spirit, a heart that hungers for you. May these words not just be something academic, something philosophical or something remote for us to reflect on, but may be very personal, a personal word to each one of us as we identify with the events and the story that we're going to look at this morning. May our hearts respond appropriately, obediently to the leading of your spirit and what you desire from us. For we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to be looking at 1 Samuel 15 this morning, and I've titled the message, The Tragic Life of Saul. The Tragic Life of Saul. Um, before we get into this text, though, um, I want to spend the first 10 minutes or so giving you an introduction to the whole series, to the life of David, because I think it's sort of important to set the stage of where we're going to go for the next few months as we unpack the story of David. Um, the life of David is the longest story of a single person found in the entire Bible. Um, we're actually given more details about David's life than we are of any other character in the Bible. Um, and, you know, I, I've been kind of shared this with Burr. I've been listening to David's story uh, on loop for a few months now, uh, just listening to it through my Bible app. And every time I go cycle through the story of David, um, I'm struck over and over again by what a crazy story it is. It's just a crazy story. Um, more than once, I've been scratching my head going, what, in the, what is the point of this story? You know, um, And even, how am I going to preach this? There are certain things that happen in the life of David you're sort of left wondering, like, I don't even get what the point is. Why is this in the Bible? And what am I supposed to get out of it? What, what am I supposed to learn from this crazy thing that happened in David's life? Um, I think we want so badly for stories like the life of David to tell a consistent story. And probably the phrase that we know better than any others that captures this life of David is a man after God's own heart. Right? And so we want to wrap our minds around that as a theme, that this is what God is about. Uh, but as we're going to see in the coming months, David's life defies any simple summary or explanation. Um, his life becomes rather complicated. 
And you start asking yourself, is David a hero? Uh, is he a monster? Um, David Wolpe writes this, the drive to see David's character as perfectly consistent betrays a blinkered view of human nature. David contains more than any single explanation can embrace. He is, in the words of historian Baruch Halpern, the first human being in world literature. To understand what Halpern means, the first human being in world literature, you have to understand what biographies of kings and other rulers were like in those days. If you put them side by side with this David narrative, the contrast is enormous. Because in ancient biographies of kings, basically what they were were essentially were lists of battle victories or all the great accomplishments and projects they did, and it basically just reads as one big PR campaign. They basically say all the positives, everything good they did, and they conveniently omit anything negative about the rulers because the whole purpose of these historical records were so that that ruler, that king, could cement his legacy for all of history whether it was in Egypt or Syria or anywhere else in these great Mesopotamian empires, the records of the kings all read the same. Everything great. They did nothing wrong. They were awesome human beings. And that's it. And that could not be said of the David account. David's story shares so many honest moments of weakness and failure. That I think, you know, historians tell us that First and Second Samuel were probably written very shortly after David's death. And I, I think there are just so many cringeworthy events that are recorded in David's life that if the same were written about us, I think we would die of embarrassment saying, I don't want that in my biography. For generations of people later going to read that about my life. I want to say this. The purpose of the David story is not to present us with a role model that we're supposed to emulate or imitate. The message of the David story is not, look at what a great guy David was. Why don't you try to be more like David in your own life? I think truthfully, when we read those kind of stories, they don't so much inspire us as they depress us, right? Because they're constantly pointing out everything that we are not. So then here is the question. What is the purpose of the David story? Why is it in the Bible? The argument that I'm going to make that's going to set the stage for every sermon that I'm going to preach here on out in the series is simply this. The story of David is the story of a person growing more and more alive to God with each year that he lives. That, in a nutshell, is why the story of David is in the Bible. It is the story of a man who is encountering God in every event of his life. And in that encounter is growing more and more alive to God with each passing year. The story of David is the story of a God who is present and at work, even in life's most messy and difficult circumstances. And it is a story of a man who is coming alive to God 
with every one of these encounters that he has with God in so many unexpected ways. Sometimes this coming alive to God is going to mean facing his greatest fears with courage, believing that God is with him. Sometimes it's going to mean lying on your face, weeping in repentance, seeking mercy from a God in the face of what seems to be an unforgivable sin. And yet in other times, it's going to be expressed as honest anger directed at God as David struggles to understand God's ways. Why are you like this, God? Why do you do this to me? But in the sum of all of that, what we find is the heart of a man that is desperately seeking God in everything he faces in his life. In every season, the common theme of the life of this man is to return to God again and again and again. This is why the series is entitled After God's Heart. To call David a man after God's own heart is not to claim that David lived a morally superior life than we did. It is the testimony that David, whether it was in his greatest moment of victory or in his darkest season of discouragement and failure, for David, God was the single greatest reality in his life. That's why God calls him a man after my own heart. We see this truth reflected in so many of the Psalms that David wrote. Psalm 16, verse 1, Keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. Psalm 18, 29, For by you I can run up against the troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. Psalm 22, 1-2, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night, but I find no rest. Psalm 23, 1. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. Psalm 51, 7 and 10. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Create in me a pure heart, O God and renew a steadfast spirit within me. This is the voice of a man that is in a desperate search for God in every season of his life. Eugene Peterson says of David, David has little wisdom to pass on to us on how to live successfully. He was an unfortunate parent and an unfaithful husband. From a purely historical point of view, he was a barbaric chieftain with a talent for poetry. But David's importance isn't in his morality or his military prowess, but in his experience of and witness to God. Every event in his life was a confrontation with God. This is why the David story is so important for us. David shows us from one vivid scene to the next what it means to be alive to God. What is surprising to me about this entire David narrative is that there is not a single supernatural miracle recorded in the entire story. Not one miracle. 
And yet, the presence of God is felt everywhere. I think so often when we think about God's presence and how he's going to pull through for us and experiencing God, we think of the supernatural, the miracles. But what the life of David is going to show us, that it is precisely in the ordinariness of so much of what we experience in life that we are invited to encounter the presence of God, who is always there, always at work, always caring for us. And it takes that heart of faith to understand his movements and his ways and his heart toward us. That's sort of the way I want to frame this entire series that we're going to be looking at these next few months in this life of David. But now we're going to zoom in and start with 1 Samuel 15. And although this is a series about the life of David, I think the place to start is not with David, but with a man named Saul, the first king of Israel. I want to start with Saul because, first of all, so much of the David story is going to involve Saul. He's one of the key players in the story of David. But I also want to start with Saul because Saul stands as such a contrast to David. If David represents the heart of a person who is growing more and more alive to God with each encounter that he has with God, Saul represents the heart of a person who is dying to God with every passing day. You know, when Saul was first selected as king, he seemed like the perfect choice. 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 2. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. So we are introduced to this guy named Saul by the most striking aspect of him, which was his commanding physical presence. He looked like a king. This isn't something that we actually mention very often, but we're actually told that Saul was a very good-looking guy, strikingly handsome. He also was head and shoulders taller than anyone in the entire nation. He was an NBA center, okay? And when it comes to leadership, height seems to matter a lot. The average height of a Fortune 500 company CEO is 6'2". The average height of the last three presidents of the United States is 6'2", also. Okay? Studies have, there have been a lot of studies comparing leadership and height. And for some reason, we naturally look to tall people as our leaders. They've actually done studies where they've had people walk through narrow walkways. And what they discovered is that if it's a tall person that's in their way, you almost always give way to them. If it's a short person, not so much. You tend to kind of push your way through. It's terrible. (laughs) This rule doesn't quite seem to apply to Asian leaders. But it's all right. uh... Saul fits the picture of what a king should look like in everyone's eyes. Even the prophet Samuel was impressed. 1 Samuel 10 Verse 24, and Samuel said to all the people, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. 
And all the people shouted, Long live the king. What a specimen. What a perfect person to lead us. Not only was Saul physically impressive, but he had a good heart. He had a good heart. After being publicly introduced as the king of Israel, he didn't command the people to build him a palace. He didn't do anything like that. He simply went back home to his father's farm and he farmed his fields like every other Israelite. He sought no special privileges. He just humbly continued the work that he was doing. There were even some local neighbors that despised him and said, why is he our king? The way that he even handled that situation showed grace and humility. 1 Samuel 10, verse 26 to 27, Saul also went to his home in Gibeah, accompanied by valiant men whose hearts God had touched. But some scoundrel said, how can this fellow save us? They despised him and brought him no gifts. But Saul kept silent, bit his tongue. It's not my business to deal with these guys. Saul also showed skill as a military leader. When the Spirit of God came into Saul, he rallied the Israelites and defeated the Ammonites in a victory that was total. And after this victory, the people wanted to put to death all of those who opposed his kingship and said, Saul will not be our king. But in 1 Samuel chapter 11, verse 12 to 13, we see the heart of Saul again. Then the people said to Samuel, who is it that said Saul shall reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day. For today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. After this initial battle, Saul would see one victory after another under his leadership. Everything about Saul in those early days was promising as the first king of Israel. But as the story goes on, what begins to happen is the heart of this man begins to change, begins to turn away from God. And two particular events that are recorded in 1 Samuel captures the change that occurs in him. The first happens in 1 Samuel 13, and we're not going to look at that. You can actually, I would actually encourage you to read that on your own. And the second happens in the passage we're looking at this morning. What's interesting is that both of these episodes involve worship. Worship. First Samuel 15, verse 1, it begins with these words. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. God makes three things very clear in these opening words to Saul. First, I am the one who made you king. I sent my prophet to anoint you. I chose you. The second that is established with Saul is this. The people that you rule over as king are not your people. They are my people. God says they belong to me. You are just given stewardship over them. And then the third thing that God makes absolutely clear to Saul is this. Therefore, listen to my words, what I command you. You are king, but I am the king of kings. 
you are beholden to me. And so he is commanded to utterly destroy every person among these Amalekites who opposed God every step of the way in Israel's history. And then he says, you are not to loot their possessions like you typically do in any other battle. Because this is a holy war. You are to destroy every animal, every possession, everything that belongs to these Amalekites. It's off bounds. Don't touch it. But Saul disobeys God and allows his men to keep the best of the animals and the possessions after the Amalekites are defeated. In verse 9 of 1 Samuel 15, it says this, But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. So this act of obedience is followed by these words in verses 10 through 11. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commands. And Samuel was angry, and he cried out to the Lord all night. God is basically saying, I'm sorry I ever made him king because he doesn't understand what his kingship is all about. He's turned his back on me, and he's doing his own thing. So early the next morning, Samuel arises, and he heads off to Carmel to confront Saul. And on his way, he hears this news that Saul has actually set up a monument in his own honor. And Saul greets him with a blatant lie in verse 13. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And so Samuel calls Saul out on this lie. In verse 14, he says, And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Rather than owning up to his sin, Saul shifts the blame to his soldiers. In verse 15, Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spare the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we have devoted to, to destruction. So it's not me. It's the people. They did this. And Samuel sees right through the lie of Saul. And he says in verse 16, Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? When Samuel tells Saul, though you are little in your own eyes, what he is most likely referring to is the fact that Saul was chickening out and basically said, it wasn't me, it was the people. And I, I was cornered into this. I was only doing what they made me do. 
And so what Saul says is, you're talking like you're such a little guy, like you're a nobody. But then right after that, he says, aren't you the head of these people? Aren't you their leader? And then he says, I anointed you to be their king. So act like a king. Why are you blame shifting on the people that are your subjects? The responsibility lies with you because you are their leader. Well, feeling cornered, Saul changes his defense. In verse 20 to 21, then Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. In other words, what Saul is saying is this. Okay, we didn't destroy everything. I admit that. But the reason why we didn't is because we wanted to sacrifice these things to God. That's why we did it. It wasn't because we were greedy. It wasn't because the stuff looked so good to us. It was because we just wanted to give this to God as an act of worship. It goes on in verse 22 and 23. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is an iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. And then verse 24 to 25, Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I might bow before the Lord. For the first time, Saul acknowledges his sin. And it seems like we're getting out of him a genuine repentance. But what follows next clearly reveals that that's not what was happening. In verses 26 to 29, And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you. For you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day, and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret. For he is not a man that he should have regret. You see, Saul shows how truly lost he was when he says this to Samuel. In verse 30, he says, Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel. And return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. Samuel tells Saul, God has rejected you. In his eyes, you are no longer king. And Saul says, okay, I get it. In God's eyes, I'm no longer king. But then he says, 
that's fine. But will you just come back with me so that the people can see you standing next to me? And then when we're all together, I will bow before God. That's what Saul says to Samuel. Saul just doesn't get it. What, in essence, he is saying, what he's, what he's revealing about his heart is all that he cares about is how he's perceived by the people, his image. That's all that matters to him. God has ceased to be a reality in Saul's life. The people are all that matter to him. In his words to Samuel, he says something very interesting. If you can go to the next slide, he says, Honor me before my people. Remember what we said in verse 1? God said, These are not your people. They are my people. And he says, I am your God. In verse 30, Saul completely reverses that order. And he says, Come and honor me in front of my people, and I will bow before your God. He doesn't even call God my God anymore. He says, let me make a show of it in front of your God so that the, my people will still respect me and think that God is with me. Well, what, what can we say about all this? What's the point? Let me see if I could try to bring it to the lesson that I think God has for us today. What we have in Saul is the picture of a person who has become so consumed with being king that he has lost all interest in God. And what's frightening to me about this picture of Saul is that all the outward acts of religion and devotion are still there in his life. I think, frankly, for the average Israelite looking at Saul's life, they didn't see anything different. Everything looked the same, and yet nothing was the same in his heart. All of that outward religion that Saul was doing was simply masking a heart that had drifted so far from God that God no longer represented anything meaningful in Saul's life. And I want to challenge you this morning that that same drift can so easily occur in our hearts. And maybe the truth is some of us sit in this room this morning, and that is true of us. It's one of the most frightening things is that religion can mask a heart that is far from God. Because we take solace in the fact that we're doing all of the things that we think God asks. I'm coming to church, aren't I? I'm here the Sunday morning, aren't I? What more does God want from me? I'm sitting in this pew listening to this message. And I think that process can be so subtle that we don't even realize. You know, when we look at this stuff that's going on here in 1 Samuel 15, you can cast it as Saul being the most devious guy in the world. But I think another way you could see it is this guy is utterly blind to how far he has fallen in his life to the point where God means nothing to him and he doesn't even realize it. What we see in the life of Saul is a God that is becoming smaller and smaller 
and smaller in his life. And that vacuum is filled by the voice of the people. The voice of the people has become louder and louder and louder to the point where that is all that he's living for, all he is living to please. And I want to ask you that this morning. Which are the voices that are loudest in your life right now? Which are the voices that have the biggest power over you in your life? Is it the voice of God? Maybe it's the voice of your spouse. Maybe it's the voice of your boss at work. I don't know what that voice is in your life. But I want to argue that it is so easy to think that God is the most important person in our life. Because we feel that outwardly we're doing all of the things that we think we're supposed to do. It may be the truth is if our heart is really revealed, God actually occupies a very small place there. And for all intents and purposes, he is not a reality that matters much to me. Thousands of years later, or over a thousand years later, Christ would come and echo a similar sentiment in Matthew 15, verse 8, quoting the prophet Isaiah. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And that's what I want to ask you this morning. Would that describe your heart? Honoring God with your lips, and yet your heart is far from God. What we're going to find in this story of David is this. God is incredibly gracious. He is unbelievably gracious. He is going to demonstrate that over and over again in the life of David. But we shouldn't confuse his grace with the thought that God is willing to take whatever garbage we want to throw his way and give him our scraps and say, that should be enough for you, God. That is something that God does not tolerate. Because what we can say about God in all this is this. Above all, God is after our hearts. God is after our hearts. Coming to church every Sunday, putting your money into the offering plate, going to Bible studies and doing all these things. These things are great. They're not bad things. But they do not substitute for what God insists from us, which is an actual relationship in which we put him at the center of everything else. This is what the life of David represented. No matter what he did, he returned to God again and again. And I want to challenge you this morning. Is that what God represents in your life. I mean, I, I take it that something has brought you here this morning, and I'm glad you're here. Don't get me wrong. I'm glad you're here. But I don't know what being here represents for you this morning. I don't know where your heart is. I don't know who holds that place of being the most important voice in your life. 
more important than your wife or your husband or your children or your boss or all of those people that you care about so much? Is that the place that God occupies in your life this morning? Many of you are familiar with uh, Francis Chan, um, very gifted speaker, man who loves the Lord. Um, in 2010, Francis Chan resigned as the lead pastor of Cornerstone Church in Simi Valley in Southern California. And uh, Cornerstone was a church that he planted years earlier with just a group of people in his living room. And under his capable leadership, he grew it into a mega church that was drawing over 5,000 people every Sunday into that building. And somewhere in the midst of the height of his ascendancy and popularity and fame and power, he walked away from all of it. Not because he was caught in a scandal, not because he was going to greener pastures because he got offered something better, which is the usual story. It wasn't for any of that. It was also right around the time that his book, Crazy Love, had just become a bestseller. It was right around the time where he was becoming a nationally known speaker, being invited to just about every... I, I, I can't attend a conference anymore where Francis Chan isn't one of the speakers. He is everywhere. But this is what Chan said about why he resigned from that church. He says this, the pride going to a conference and seeing my face on a magazine and hearing whispers and walking in the room and actually liking it. And then speaking to God, he says, everything you said you hated, that's me right now. And he says, I got to get out of here. I'm losing my soul. And he lamented losing the old Francis Chan that he once knew. And he said, talking about himself, that stupid kid who fell in love with Jesus in high school and starts calling everyone in the yearbook that he knew to tell them about Jesus because he was so concerned about their eternal destiny. That was the Francis Chan that he wanted to recover. You can argue the merits of whether or not it was good for Francis Chan to walk away from Cornerstone. I, I just think, though, as a fellow pastor, what courage that must have taken to be the founding pastor of this church. Thousands of people depending on you and to just walk away from all of that and the unbelievable harsh things that people must have said. Don't you love us? Don't you care about us? Don't we matter to you? And I thought, as a pastor, would I have the courage to do something like that? Could I make a decision that I felt so convicted by God that this is what he wanted, but yet so radical that a quarter of you would leave ICC? Could I really do something like that if I felt convicted that that's what God wanted? Would I have the courage? In other words, as pastor of ICC... What are the voices that matter to me the most? Is it really the voice of God? 
Or is it your voices telling me that I am your beloved pastor? And then I thought, what if a mortgage is involved in this? (laughs) We're not even landowners right now. But what if we have a mortgage tied to this? Then could I afford to see a quarter of you earners walk away (laughs) from our church? I think what the life of David is going to press upon us to ask over and over again, week after week, is this. How real is God to you? How real is God to you? Is he the most important voice in your life? Is he the one that directs your paths? Is he the one that you turn to and celebrate in your moments of victory? Is he the one that you turn to in your greatest moment of defeat and failure? Is he, in other words, the greatest reality that anchors your life and everything you are and all that you do? That is what the life of David is going to be inviting us to. Eugene Peterson, I'll close with this, says this. We can't get away from God. He's there whether we like it or not, whether we know it or not. We can refuse to participate in God. We can act as if God weren't our designer, provider, and covenant presence. But when we refuse, we're less. Our essential humanity is less. Our lives are diminished and impoverished. And it's just this sense of lessness that gives us an important clue to understanding ourselves. We're aware of something we need or lack most of the time. We're not complete. We're not fully human. This sense of being unfinished is pervasive and accounts for a great deal that's distinctive in us humans. We then attempt to complete ourselves by getting more education or more money, going to another place or buying different clothes, searching out new experiences. The Christian gospel tells us that in and under and around all of these incompletions is God. God is who we need. The God hunger, the God thirst is the most powerful drive in us. It's far stronger than all the drives of sex, power, security, and fame put together. Let's pray. I think that's fundamentally what we're being invited to in this Life of David series, After God's Heart. And so the way I want to begin into this series is by this simple invitation for you to explore the depths of your heart. As I was reflecting on this message, God was bringing me back to some of those places of my youth when as a young high school kid, not knowing anything about missions, I got in an airplane and went out to Kenya. I just remember those early days of my youth when I was just praying these kind of crazy prayers, saying, God, I just want to burn for you. It was crazy, but back then in those days, I actually thought that God was calling me to Africa to be a martyr. I thought that I would be dead within the first couple of years in Africa. And it was just such crazy prayers. I said, even if it means being a martyr, you know, God, I will get on that plane and go to Africa and be your witness. And I think about my life now. In so many ways, it looks like progress. It looks like I'm growing 
it looks like I'm learning. It looks like I'm accomplishing more and more for God's kingdom. But in the secrecy of my own heart, sometimes I really wonder. I wonder, have I lost that purity of a devotion to God? In my sophistication of my theology and knowing so much more and having so much more of a reputation, is there something that I have lost in this journey of just simply loving God and understanding His heart toward me? What does God think of me? What would his assessment be? What is frightening is even if God's blessing is withdrawn, I think I can keep pushing forward with ICC and making this church something. That's what terrifies me. But what we find in the life of this man, David, is not a saint. My God, the things this guy would do to commit adultery and then kill the husband to cover his crime. And that's not the end of the horrible things that this man will do before his life is over. And I don't know what horrible things you've done in your life. But what I find in the story of David is the story of hope, of a God that pursues us and is jealous for us and hungers for our heart, not our outward acts of devotion, not our sacrifices. God wants our heart because he wants us. So you're here this Sunday. You're sitting in this pew this morning in the sanctuary. But can I invite you to reflect, what does God want from you? He wants more than your physical presence here in this place this morning. Whether you realize it or not, God is the most significant and singular reality in your life. And he wants you to come to understand that, to give him your devotion, the first place of your heart. So could I just invite you to maybe just pray for a few minutes and just come before the Lord and say, God, where is the state of my heart this day? What do I love above all? Who is the most important voice? Maybe if I could invite you to see and realize that in the whispers of God's heart toward you, what he is doing is calling him, calling you to himself and inviting you into a life that walks with him in every season of your life and experience what intimacy with the creator of your soul looks like. Would you just pray that for a few minutes and our worship team will come and lead us in a time of response. Let's pray.